Welcome to Idle Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney to wind down another week. So Rob, it's GDC week, there's a lot going on, and I have heard that you have been playing a lot of Burnout lately, and you wanted to chat about that. Yeah, not having been able to make it out for GDC has left me with my semi-annual case of GDZ regret. Uh, <laughs> so of GDC, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I needed something. I need. I needed sort of chicken soup for the for the uh, the, the game journalist soul, I guess. <laughs> and uh, actually, it's ironic because I've had this installed for ages, ever since I did this uh, best driving games like feature for PC Gamer like a year and a half ago. And I just had it le- installed on my on my hard drive. Didn't realize it until I had to open up Origin again for some reason uh, to activate a code for the for the new Need for Speed. Ironically, uh, yes. <laughs> but I opened it up and I saw it, and and there was Burnout, and I was like, oh, I could really, I could really go for Burnout. Uh, this is Burnout Paradise, yes. and uh, so I've been playing a lot of that this this week, and sort of rediscovering. Just what a fantastic little arcade racing game it is. It's it, yeah. it's kind of amazing to me, just like the sheer joy I am taking in a game that really reminds me a lot of sort of uh, the, the, the games I used to play on like Super Nintendo, right? Like sure. it reminds me a bit of like F-Zero and I think there was a game called like High Gear or something <laughs> nice. that I loved. Uh, and this And this sort of has that same like... It's just this like fantasy of driving, but it has nothing to do with cars, right? It's it's yeah, so divorced yeah. from the experience of driving. It's just the ideal of it. I really, really do love that. Um, personally, one of my favorite games ever of all time is actually well, two. I, both the first Crazy Taxi and the sequel Crazy Taxi Two. Nobody ever talks about the sequel, but those are two of my favorite games, you know, ever. Ever. And they have nothing to do with driving. It's all about just being in a weird place and driving fast and doing goofy stuff in a colorful world. And so I completely get that instinct. You know, Burnout Paradise is interesting because I feel like after Burnout Paradise, every open world racing game is in some way trying to be Burnout Paradise. (laughs) Totally. Um, And I understand why that is, but it's striking to me how few games have actually succeeded at getting at what Burnout Paradise, what made Burnout Paradise great. And so I'm playing it, uh, I've been playing it for, for this entire week, and it's it's weird, because like, there's a lot of things that you do that normally I don't like. Uh, there's a lot of, I guess you'd call it grinding, but there's a lot of sort of driving around aimlessly, uh, like looking for cars uh, that, hmm. that you're supposed to like take down, uh, which means cause, cause them to have an accident. And then you get them in your garage and you have access to them. You have to do a ton of events before you get uh, your driver's license upgraded and uh, new cars are made available to you. But, you know, it's it, 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 like as, as far as what the meaning of that driver's license is, I couldn't honestly tell you, right? It's just <laughs> now you've got a class A license. I'm like, okay, I guess I guess I have a class A license now. But as far as I can see, the events I'm doing are pretty much the exact same, just just with different cars. But for some reason... The the mix of events you can do in Burnout Paradise is there's always something that like kind of strikes my fancy. So like there's a lot of like point A to point B uh races that are just you know, you choose your own route, and so there's a lot of like fun of trying to find shortcuts. Um there's there's stunt runs where you just try to do like crazy tricks with your car, which really just means trying <laughs> to find ramps. Yeah. And <laughs> and go sailing off them. 
Thelma and Louise style. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, like, it, it's interesting because even over the course of a session, I'll sort of get bored with one aspect of Burnout Paradise, but then I'll just be like, well, okay, then I guess I'm tired of racing, but I would love to do a, um, a sort of takedown event where the goal is just the goal is literally just to smash into these kind of crummy AI drivers who the <laughs> level seated with and just smash them into walls and and you get these amazing like catastrophic collisions in Burnout Paradise. Um, and, I, and I actually think maybe that's maybe that's one of the the main things that makes Burnout Paradise special is that there's no sense of a, there's no sense of there being people in these cars, like none. Yeah. Like the cars are obviously empty, and so there there is never for a moment the pretense that there are people involved, uh, despite the fact you have this weird DJ Atomica <laughs> sort of yammering at you uh, through the car radio. But then there's th- there's also the angle that none of the cars are real either. Uh, there like there's clearly things that are meant to be like a Jaguar or a or or Lamborghini, but they're all they're all fictional versions of, of those brands. And what's interesting is what what I've always heard is that if you want to use those cars, like the real famous like supercar brands in a racing game, you actually have to go through a lot of like negotiations with them because they're very specific about how they want their their car represented. Sure, uh, and sure. so nobody like Lamborghini does not want. Uh, a Lamborghini to be depicted as like flattening the driver's compartment completely as the car flips upside down uh, and becomes like a decapitation hazard. But Burnout Paradise has no compunction about that. So you'll have these amazing, like awesome car wrecks where like the entire front half of a car is just like ripped off <laughs> as it like goes airborne sideways into a bridge support. And it'd be a horrific like accident in real life, be the worst thing ever to contemplate. Yeah. But in Brown Paradise, you're free to just sort of sit there, like, clapping your hands like a child, right? That little <laughs> awful part of yourself that was, like, thrilled when you saw a wrecked car on the yeah. highway. Burnout Paradise is, like, Burnout Paradise has got a direct line to that child. <laughs> I think that's kind of amazing. Like, I, I kind of love when games embrace the id in a joyful way like this. Like, nobody gets hurt. There's no people in these cars. Let's just have some fun with Rex. Like, that's that's sort of a wonderful thing. Um, and it, not just in racing games, but it's, it's sort of something I've always appreciated in any kind of game. Like, the tone has to be right for this sort of thing. But when it is, it's sort of a beautiful moment. Yeah, and, and that kind of tone is is a hard thing to, to pull off. Uh, especially, like, I think shooters in general ended up in a weird place with this. Yeah, uh, just yeah. because it's it, it became very hard to represent... Um, it's very hard to do to the human body what burnout does to cars, right? Because <laughs> right. you can't, you can't really make too much of an abstraction of a person. And so I think it's a little harder in a shooter to, even if you're going for like insane, like over the top, like violence and gore, <laughs> yeah. uh, to make it cartoonish. It's really, I, I think it's, it's pretty hard to actually get there, right? Like to actually arrive at cartoonish horror versus like kind of off-putting brutalization. Sure. You know, I think one of the only examples that does it kind of well are the, the new Mortal Kombat games that are just so unbelievably cartoonish and they have these amazing soap opera, you know, storylines and, and things like that, that that it kind of feels right, even though it is sort of a, a brutal depiction of, of terrible things happening to 
I guess not even most of the characters are technically human, but humanoid, I guess, bodies. They're just so, it's just so hard to take seriously. And I, I feel like they might be the only ones that really kind of hit that tone correctly for, you know, like a fighting game or, or you know, something that's not just uh, a racing game or a total abstraction. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I think there's almost a desensitization that happens with uh, Mortal Kombat. Because, like, certainly the first few times I see, like, it does the x-ray cam as someone's spine is, like, severed in four places. Like, the first few times I see that, I'm like, holy shit, this is way too much. I can't, I can't handle this. But then it's, it's, it's sort of like the game has me sitting there with my eyes propped open and so I'm just desensitized (laughs) to it. Cause like, you know, by, by my like 10th game or something, when I like land a good combo and I'm seeing bones like shattering and exploding, I'm like, yeah, that's awesome. I think for me, part of it is that the, the especially in Mortal Kombat X, the storyline, or, or whatever the most recent one was, maybe two years ago, the storyline is so just this wonderful, like, it really is like a Fast and the Furious sort of thing that's going on with that. Like, this sort of wonderful, over-the-top, goofy soap opera that helped me get into that mindset, I guess, of like, yeah, this is all just awesome and nothing is real here. Um, that they, they kind of did that pretty well, but... But yeah, it's it's a total I can see why, you know, Forza gets the license because they they have this, you know, fetishistic perfection in in making cars look as absolutely beautiful as as humanly possible and and you know, something like burnout is like, no, you're not going to get that for your well, totally rad Rex. <laughs> well, it's interesting cuz the funny thing is even Criterion couldn't reproduce what was great about Forza when they were sort of handed the keys to the Need for Speed franchise. Sure, um, sure. If you, you know, I went back and I, I, I tried to get into Most Wanted, uh, which doesn't seem to run real well on a on a Windows <laughs> 8 machine. By the <laughs> sure. way, uh, doesn't seem to really agree with the agree with the platform. But going and playing Most Wanted, it was like. It, like literally, it was Burnout Paradise reimagined as a Need for Speed game. And the result was just, it was just, you, like, it just turned to ash in your mouth. Uh, and, and I think yeah. part of that was because they were so inhibited about what they could do to these cars. So you still had a lot of the same elements where it was like you would have events where you were supposed to smash somebody's, like, Corvette into a wall using your Mustang. And you'd have the camera slow down to show the wreck in slow motion. But they couldn't actually depict a Corvette piling into a concrete wall at 120 miles an hour. <laughs> so what would happen is you would have this like slow motion impact, but the car was like bizarrely fine. Uh, so like the, the front end would like get a little, like the hood would like fold in slightly. Uh, the headlights would always sort of like pop out. Uh, but that was about it. Like the car was basically like otherwise fine. Uh, I think they try to darken, I think they would darken the, uh, the windshield. Uh, to depict a car that was destroyed, uh, wow. almost like yeah, maybe like drawing an X cross eyes over a uh, over a dead cartoon character. But it was it was all these like it was using sort of the same uh, like the, the the same grammar as uh, Burnout Paradise, but unfortunately you couldn't use the same vocabulary, yeah, right? Yeah. If, if that makes sense, like you're, you're using the same you're using the same structure, but like everything's been toned down and 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 sort of whitewashed to the point of now it, it doesn't even make sense. Now what? Why did the camera show me that? Because I honestly can't tell how that car was damaged in any way. Yeah, 
Yeah. Um, the the other, but but I think you know. So so I'm playing Burnout Paradise, and, and the other thing I'm 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 thinking about though is just it, it wasn't just that it couldn't be reproduced with um with like Need for Speed Most Wanted, but later when they came back with Rivals, uh, it it didn't really get better. I don't think when you saw uh Ubisoft uh come out with the crew. Uh, oh, which yeah. was sort of an attempt to do Burnout Paradise in, enti- in an entire like mini mini United States. Yeah, uh, that kind of ends up falling on its face. It, it, it's kind of a, a, a weirdly joyless experience, and so it, it's funny because like Burnout Paradise, when I'm playing it, I'm like, this is so simple, right? It is, yeah. it is a really good. It's like really good greasy spoon food, right? It sure. seems like the simplest sure. thing in the world. But you can't get it anywhere else. It's it, it, <laughs> nobody else can recreate it, and they spend more money on it, and they have more tools and technology thrown at the problem, and nobody can get at what made Burnout Paradise really work. And I find that really interesting because you know, in I think it's been like ten years this this game has has been out, maybe maybe like six or seven, but it's been a while. It has been a while, yeah. So you'd think there'd be a, a really good successor by now, but it but it almost seems like every subsequent game has to be like Burnout Paradise, but with more stuff. And the with more stuff part of it is always sort of cutting against the grain of why Burnout Paradise was actually good. It's like adding too many, like adding too much salt to your perfect greasy spoon food or something, like like or paprika or something. It just doesn't quite belong. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm thinking about it, and I haven't had that kind of fun. And Burnout Paradise is an awesome game. I haven't played it since it came out, and and it came out, by the way, in January 2008. So yes, it has been almost 10 years at this point. Um, I haven't played a game that was quite like that since then, and and had the same sort of joyous, you know, feeling of here's the thing I can just jump into. I don't have to think about it too much, and my brain will just sort of take over and and allow me to enjoy this goofy kind of world. I haven't had something like that with cars since then either. And yeah, I mean, I, why do you think that is? Do you think it's it's sort of like people are trying too hard? Is it is it a zen kind of thing almost? Yeah, I I think so. Um I I I think it's not just trying too hard. I think it's also there are attempts to move the burnout paradise in directions that suit uh, what publishers want, maybe more than what a a player necessarily wants. So like the, the example I'll give you there is um, I want to say it was need for speed rivals, but honestly at this point, like the need for speed series just begins to turn to a blur. Um, (laughs) Yeah. I can't tell them apart at this point either. (laughs) I just sort of remember playing the one that where you got, uh, points for being either almost like a Paragon Renegade kind of thing. Yeah, I like, think that's Rivals. Yeah. Okay, I yeah. enjoyed that one, but that's kind of the only one that stands well, out at all. Rivals for me, is so, so weird. It starts with this weird yeah. like, like the, the 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 you could be a Renegade or something, yeah, and like yeah. a cop. And it was like the Renegade was like, "You can't stop me," and the cop is like, "I will break you." Yeah. And the cop was really weirdly creepy. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, so like that's a perfect example. So, uh, that game is trying to be like Burnout Paradise, but now with more cop stuff because yeah. everyone loves uh, the old Need for Speed Hot Pursuit, not the 
not not the new old pursuit though that was right. good too the, not the new hot pursuit <laughs> but the old hot pursuit yeah. uh but not the game that was just hot pursuit need for speed 3 hot pursuit that was the good one this is oh, this man. is why the nomenclature of that series is is totally yeah, boned impossible yeah but so it's like okay you guys love you guys love the car chases but we need to add stuff that you can over the course of the series they've been like but you need to be the cop as well and that should be a, a, that should be a huge part of the game uh in addition to running away from the police so then it turns into this weird uh like crappy Mario Kart as the <laughs> as the two players the the cop and and the the guy running from the cop uh both get these weird cartoon powers uh, to sort of screw around with each other. But what that ends up doing in practice is you weren't playing a Mario Kart game where it's like the sort of cartoon, like combat racing game. Yeah. What you're playing is an Need for Speed game where it feels the absolute best when you're on a really sweet run and you're just like barreling through streets like 150 miles an hour. That's where that game feels really good. And what they added in were all these things to disrupt that experience. It's it's oh. it's it's like if if your character in Cannibal tripped randomly every 12 <laughs> steps or something. Like that's yeah. kind of how it ends up feeling. Uh but the other thing with that game is they're also trying to push everyone into EA's like online environment, right? right. This is this is sort of what EA has been trying to do for ages and uh, I feel like the crew operates a little bit like this as well, but it's this attempt to uh, make sure that the game doesn't really, that there's no way to get away from the online experience that they have decided that everyone wants and everyone should have. Yeah. And so it's this thing that now is constantly this shared experience where you can get griefed at any time. And that's, I think, inherently frustrating. Uh, but, but I think that's, I think that's one reason you don't see this reproduced, right? Is that in, in Burnout Paradise's day, not everything had to hook up to the publishers like online services. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But now everything is about sort of forcing these people into these channels where the publisher can sort of control your access to the game, but then also sell stuff directly to you. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and so I feel like that is, that is a tension that now exists between like the player experience and then what the, what the designers want you to do that didn't exist when Burnout Paradise came. Yeah. I'm I'm sort of thinking about this and you know, I've been at GDC all week. I'm back now, but I've been at GDC all week and looking at so many small games and indie games and thinking about how um it seems like almost every genre has been sort of co-opted, not co-opted, but but used in an interesting way in in tiny games or very, you know, smaller games and god, I almost wonder if this is this is the sort of thing that uh i would love some sort of like mid-tier or higher tier indie to to go after actually going after sort of a a fun arcadey racing experience that doesn't have to you know necessarily look amazing it can look amazing for 2008 sort of thing it can be burnout paradise level i i think um, that kind of did sort of happen like did it when did, oh my god uh, the, the last uh the driver game that Ubisoft oh. put out with uh, Ubisoft Reflections. That okay. clearly did. I do not think that game had a massive budget behind it. Like, because even yeah. for its time, it looked kind of crude um, sure. and yeah. a little. It, it wasn't up to the sort of standards that you were seeing from EA's racing game right. offerings. Right. Yeah. But the last driver game, I think, did sort of sort of find that sense of joy, and I think that was an example of maybe because it wasn't quite viewed as a um, 
you know, super triple A, yeah, uh, yeah. like tentpole release that it was kind of free to just sort of screw around on its own terms. Um, but I, and, but I, I don't think we're going to see another game like that because I don't think Ubisoft is in the in the business of making games like that. And even that, now we're talking about a yeah. game that's like seven years old. Yeah, yeah. So for sure. yeah, I think that is a space that's yeah that, that has kind of kind of been abandoned. I think so, and that's a little sad because I really love games like this. I really, I really do enjoy. You know, I, I was thinking about it, and I was like, yeah, I, I really like Forza, but I also really really miss something like a burnout paradise and i really really miss i mean i miss terribly the the crazy taxi games that you know nobody's ever gonna make again i wish they would uh you know things that are more so much more about being colorful and fun and wacky than they are about the you know the the lifestyle of being an incredibly rich race car driver you know oh Um, that you know that's another great point though (laughs) burnout paradise doesn't have any of that yeah like at no point do you have to yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, so so many of those games became these like <laughs> I mean they kind of became like douchebag simulators. A little bit, yeah. Um <laughs> where you know, every time you like go for a race, like everything has to stop and be like, Hey, you got new rims yeah. and you got new chrome <laughs> uh exhaust outlets. Have fun. And it's like, yeah, I just kinda I just kinda wanted to race, if that's okay. Exactly. I just want to throw my car across, you know, the city on a huge ramp or a big hill. Like, I don't I don't care about the rims. Yeah. Like, when Burnout Paradise came out, I'm not sure how many huge open world racing games were around. I'm not sure how many people were really capable of building big, yeah. vibrant, open world racing games. Um, but then, just a few years later... Everything became open world, and open world sort of became a genre unto itself with its own rules, right? Where sure. there had to be something going on uh, in every direction. There had to be this sort of like theme park approach to to where events were happening, what you could do at any given time. And Burnout Paradise is kind of delightfully naive about all that, and <laughs> yeah. I think it's better for it. And that's why I, that's I think why it can't fully be recaptured. And and I, and I suspect there are other games. That, that sort of fit that mold. I mean, you know, over on Three Moves Ahead, Bruce Garrick is, is always, uh, ready to talk about how war games of, like, war games and sims of the 90s, uh, were often really fun and not that inaccessible because they also took, they also exist in an environment where you can make things more com- complicated than they were before. But you mm-hmm. couldn't make them too complicated because you still had limitations of the hardware. Once you sort of broke past that barrier, there's nothing to stop you from just sort of adding stuff in. And so games became increasingly um, a, a lot of Sims and a lot of a lot of serious war games became these increasingly like baroque constructions uh, that were interesting to fewer and fewer people. Yeah. One day I want somebody like a, a double find to make something like this. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that would be really wonderful and amazing somehow. Awesome. Shall we go on to our weekend correspondence, Rob? Absolutely. I'll I'll start us off with the oh, uh, right. with the first letter. Uh, hey thumbs. Rob talking about his playing games in the most efficient way possible prompted me to write this. 
A couple years back, I went into rehab for substance abuse programs. I've been clean for almost two years now and have reestablished my relationship with video games. When I first got clean and started playing video games again, I noticed that everything I played, I tried to beat or get through as quickly as possible. It was as if I gave value to myself on the ability to complete them quickly and prioritized that over personal enjoyment. Like Rob said, in, in some games this is great, but with my addictive personality, this happened all the time and it really started to bother me. As I try to improve most other aspects of my life, I've been teaching myself to take time in games. I move that right joystick up once in a while to actually look above and admire the worlds created for my enjoyment. I'm not so preoccupied with beating games anymore that I've learned to actually enjoy the process. It's that whole journey not the destination cliche, but it actually rings true in this circumstance. I think something in our video game culture has instilled in us a gotta go fast mentality. For me personally, it took away from the wonderment that the same culture can bring us. Would love to hear your thoughts. Aaron Hockadall. Wow. Um, first, thank you, Aaron, for sharing that. That's, that's pretty amazing. And, and it, and it does make a certain kind of sense. It's, it's like addictive personalities and, and being addicted to like the sense of accomplishment or progression. Like I, I hear that. Like I definitely, um, struggle sometimes with feeling like I get enough done in a day and, and, and try to like to think that I do a lot in a day, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I've had to sort of uh, do that as well, especially if you do this, uh, you know, for a job, it's, it's kind of like you're always up against a deadline. Like, God, I have to play 10 things in two hours, not literally, but you know, sometimes you're up against a lot of deadlines and you have to get through something, you have to get through something. And it, and it does really help um, to have that mentality of like, well, you got to stop and smell the digital roses. Sometimes it really, really, it's how a lot of people play and you need to keep that in mind. If you're reviewing something, you do have to like at least try to keep in mind that, uh, that there's other things to see there and you should try to be in the spirit of the game. And sometimes you have to forcibly remind yourself that, but it's worth it to do so, I think. I don't think it's unique to people who do this for a living either. I hear a lot of people talking about sort of like backlog guilt, right? The pile of yeah. shame and stuff like that. Yeah. Like at this point, our options for entertainment are, are so plentiful that there is this like sense that you have to get through things quickly because there's other stuff out there that, that you might be missing. So I, I do think it's, I, I do think it's, it's, it's great to, to sort of take this approach. And it is kind of amazing how many games, uh, are sort of built to almost cause you to ignore, uh, the world that's been built for you. Like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I'm always sort of stunned, uh, at, I mean, the Assassin's Creed series is a really good example of this because they really are these sort of gorgeous, reconstructed, like lost worlds. But they make almost no impression on me because the game is always so insistent that, like, it's always like uh, someone like jangling keys in front of a toddler, right, or, or a baby. It's yeah. it's like, yeah, yeah, th that's great. St. Peter's Basilica, fantastic. Forget that. You got to chase that guy through the crowd until you can catch him, and then you'll you'll have achieve you'll achieve this event. Uh, and, and so I think that's that's another aspect of this, which is a lot of these worlds have been sort of lovingly constructed and they are amazing to behold, but then the game design around them is this really, uh, you know, is this really like hyper, uh, transactional distracting, uh, vision of, of how you should inhabit this world. Yeah. It's man. I, I actually am I'm thinking about this now and 
I do this to myself in in real life when I'm running. It's a it's a weird and funny thing, but you know, I was in San Francisco this week and obviously I think everybody knows who's listening to this how much I love San Francisco and miss living there. And I, I was running up one of my favorite hills the other day and uh, decided to go by Lombard Street, you know, the top of Lombard Street where it's very twisty and there's always a lot of tourists. And I and I sort of made myself stop for a second and just look at it and and sort of say, like, OK, just get a mental picture. I know you can't stay here forever, but like, look at it. And and I sort of like was glad I made myself do that because now that's sort of this little memory I have. And I did it again yesterday morning when I was running along the Embarcadero and, and sort of, you know, made myself take little sort of take a moment to, to, you know, as I was running, just look at sort of the way the water looked on the bay as it was sort of glinting up. It's, it's a weird thing, but, but I, I do it in real life because I do it in games. It's, it's funny. I guess that's one of those real life things that I sort mm. of learned from video games, maybe. Maybe, but also, I mean, don't you feel that Maybe everyone feels that like the world has speeded up around them yes, and that's, that's a natural so function of aging. But yeah. at the same time, I don't know, man, my grandfather retired and he was like 50. He retired like 50 yeah. at age 50 with like a full pension and was able to sort of spend the next like 35 years, 40 years, like basically smelling the roses. Wow. Um, yeah, and I don't. I don't think his job that he retired from at age fifty was necessarily the most taxing job in the world either. Sure, he was an office sure. worker for Amico. Uh, but the reason I mention this is just because I, I I do feel like at this point, uh, maybe being part of a generation that has known real economic insecurity and are constantly told uh, in our line of work that there's you know if you won't if you won't like hit your numbers if you won't work faster and harder you got to hustle yeah because yeah, yeah. there's a lot of people who want your job and will be happy to take it from you and the implication is someone's going to be happy to give it to them yeah. uh, that I, I mean have you still like i think it, i i find it very easy to fall into the pattern of like um you know sort of care, like measuring my life with an egg timer um, yeah. Yeah. and you know, cause I actually, ironically, I, I took a big walk yesterday as well. Cause I, cause I actually had a free afternoon, uh, and there's an awesome new bagel place in Cambridge, uh, Ooh, nice. bagel source that I, that I wanted to hit and get some bagels. Nice. Uh, but, but I took a big walk and, and, and sort of decided I was going to treat myself to just sort of being in Cambridge for a day. Cause I'm, cause I'm leaving and heading to, to a different part of Boston, That's uh, right. in, yeah. in, in a couple weeks, but it was amazing to me how much effort it took to do what you just said, right? To, yeah. to actually pause and like say, no, just like look at this thing. Like you are here in this moment, you know, you, you're young, you're healthy, you're happy, like exist in this moment, appreciate this view, like experience this day and don't worry about the 90 other things that are sort of like, you know, prickling at the back of your mind. Yeah. Uh, and that is a really hard thing to, to escape. And I think a, like it's hard to escape when you're playing games. It's hard to escape when you're walking through your favorite city on a beautiful day. We should, we should find some way of, of, of like, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I know a lot of people say, remember to do this, but God, there's gotta be some way of like not setting an alarm to remind yourself to do that, but somehow of <laughs> keeping that actually present. Very awesome letter, though. Thank you, Aaron. Um, okay, next letter comes from Tyler from SF. Hi, Rob and Danielle. First of all, I love the interesting discussions you two have every week, and I was inspired to write in because of it. My question for you is, when do you guys feel it's appropriate time to review a game? Do you guys ever feel like it would be better, albeit not likely possible, to review a game a few months after release? Oh, man. Oh, my Tyler. God. <laughs> Tyler. Do I ever wish 
<laughs> that we had a few months to uh, to fully review again because oh my god, so many things. I feel like not only do they get lost in the fray, there's a lot of smaller games that if they release during sort of a big launch time, like they'll just never get the attention that maybe they deserved. Not only that, but man, that's how games are actually played. People people buy them months after release, or they might take a while to beat them, or they might be playing three things at once, that sort of thing. Like, yes, oh my god, I, I how much I wish we, we could do that, and how much I feel that would be better coverage in a lot of ways, and, and more suited to, to the way more people actually play games. I review a fair number of games, but increasingly I find the entire process... Um distasteful sure (laughs) because oftentimes like when people are coming to you with a review now uh they're saying well like they're coming to you they're coming to you on wednesday a lot of the a lot of the times and asking Mm -hmm. you uh if you can have the review in uh by friday or they can wait until monday uh but really by friday by end of day friday would be great uh so they can they can post it and you know, like that's 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 almost universal. By the way, there's not there's oh, yeah. not one outlet operating that way. That's everyone is trying to get that that review up as close as possible to launch. Because as far as I can tell, traffic plummets for that stuff uh, like almost with every hour it does. Uh, after <laughs> after a game is available for for play. So there's this incentive to to be first. Uh, and that is the only way you're going to sort of recoup the cost of the review uh, back from back from your audience. But at the same time, I think the the value of those reviews is becoming less and less. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that really frustrates me, especially as someone who like it has to cover a lot of strategy games and such. Um, just because there's a lot of times I feel like. Yeah, I guess this is Here's my opinion right now. Is it a considered opinion that I've had that I've had time to reflect on? Not really. I literally was yeah. playing this game up until 6 hours before I filed the review. Yeah. And this is really a first reaction. And I hate having to do that. And I know how much better my reviews are and how much better my criticism is when I have a few days a week to, and, and also my writing, just in general, like being able to sleep on things, uh, makes them better. But that is that's not how the business operates right now. Yeah, it's it's particularly frustrating. You know, um, I've just got a job as a reviews editor, and this is what I've been doing for a couple of months. And certainly, when you're a smaller outlet, it you get early code less than you know being at at certain bigger outlets, perhaps you know that might have the clout to kind of get something. 10 days or two weeks or, or precious Lord, maybe a month ahead of time. And, and, you know, whoever's writing the review has the time to spend with the game, the time to consider the game, the time to, you know, write a couple of drafts, you know, not just sort of shit something out and send it to the editor and the editor just furiously has to edit it as quickly as possible and post. And, you know, especially if you're doing a video review for something as well, you need oh, at least God, a few yeah. hours to, to get that up well, as well. And there's the video review about- process basically cuts your review off like 12 or 24 hours early, right? Yeah. Because like yeah. the time it takes to then go through production on a video uh, is always longer than you think it's going to be. Um, <laughs> when I started doing video stuff for, for IGN reviews, uh, it was it was a shit show every time because uh, I was so <laughs> I was so new to it and the, yeah. the I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing, but but, but it did mean that like okay the review wasn't going to run until Friday afternoon, 
but basically I needed to be like, you know, hands up in the air, uh, not touching it anymore yep. by like Wednesday morning. Yeah. Um, and that meant I had a weekend and a couple days, uh, and also meant that I had to be playing the game with an eye towards producing good video. Yes. Uh, which is different from playing naturally. Oh, it sure is. So yep. it's, yeah. You have to almost perform, honestly, when, when you're doing that. You have to think about where the camera is, sort of what's interesting. Is it making your point? There is so much going on with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, really, like, the, the thing is, I, I, I think most games couldn't even be reviewed. I Like, I, I think ideally, like, to really reach, like, a a good critical perspective on, on a, on a game that's uh, of any substan- substantial size or complexity. I, I, I think I'd, <laughs> I think in an ideal world, uh, I would want to have like a, a full week with the game mm-hmm. and then like four di- four or five days at least to sort of fiddle with the review. Um, yeah. and I think at this point I'm having to do that, job in in half the time sometimes less uh and and so i i do feel like reviews now are are very good at getting at a a critic sort of first take response to a game yeah but i'm not sure it's 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 what i'm not it's, i'm not sure it's even what you and i were doing at game shark back in the day yeah it's not not by a long shot <laughs> um and yeah it's man it's it's tough i i more and more, I think about this a lot, and and you know there are certainly some sites that that do ongoing game coverage more than they do reviews, and I think you know more sites will be probably doing some of that as we kind of go on and and move on in the world. I I sure would love just a insulated, you know, completely insulated from traffic. Like let's just have considered takes on reviews that we all had a month to do. Now, that would be a cool website. Yeah. I don't know how it would make money, but it would be a cool website. <laughs> on, a, on an underperforming Patreon. That, yeah, that's, exactly. how, that's how it would make money. <laughs> uh, that would then be divided among like eight writers. Um, but here, here's a question for you. Um, and I'm just, I'm just curious. Like, uh, what are like one or two of the reviews you've been happiest with uh, that, you, that you've done in, in your career? And like, what was, what was the process around those? Oh, wow. Honestly, one of the one of the reviews I've been happiest with that I thought I did uh, just the best job with. Um, I was really, really thrilled with how my Gone Home review uh, went, and I was really thrilled with how my, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, uh, Dragon's Crown review went. Even though that I got a lot of controversy, I guess those are my two most controversial reviews of all time, too, actually, and both in sort of the summer of 2013 at Polygon. Um, Honestly, I just had a ton of time for both of them. I mean, really, like, I, I got the Gone Home code three weeks before release. And, you know, I played it the night I got it and had weeks and, we, you know, not, not you know, a million weeks, but I had weeks to write that and lay it out and feel good about it and sort of be at peace with myself about it. Same thing with Dragon's Crown. I had that game a month before it came out and just... I played like 40 something odd hours of it before I even wrote anything down in terms of, of actual, you know, review notes. And then, and then had another week where I was playing it and writing and playing and writing and playing and writing. I had so much time on those and it was, it was really great. I mean, especially sort of the way reviews were run at Polygon at that point when I was just doing reviews, that was it. I was just the reviewer. That was my title was senior reviewer. And that's the only kind of stuff I wrote there at that point. 
um, I just had that environment where it was like, take your goddamn time and do the best job humanly possible. And it was fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. I think, I think for me, uh, probably my favorite reviews, the things I'm happiest going back and reading today are uh, a couple of reviews I did for kill screen, ironically, uh, which is, which is funny. I say ironic because <laughs> I like, I'm not even sure I was ever paid for them. Uh, sure. because like the rate was so terrible there that it was like <laughs> what they paid for review was almost not worth the trouble it took to invoice them. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I was working with, uh, with, with Ryan Quo was my, was sort of the, the line oh, yeah, editor over there. A fantastic editor there yeah yeah and so i go back and the two reviews that I, I return to a lot as the closest i've ever come to sort of i think getting at the essence of of what I, what i want to accomplish with my criticism uh were these two reviews i did one for need for speed the run nice. and one for uh the the, the darkness too oh, and awesome. yeah. both of those were kind of b-grade games uh, mm-hmm. they, they were not, they were not super high concept, uh, and, and both of them had some, had some pretty significant flaws, but in each case, I mean, cause it was kill screen, they weren't paying anything. There was no rush on anything. So in each case, it was the, 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 the order of the day was to sort of say what you wanted to say, uh, and, and make it memorable. And yeah. so I, yeah, I think that was a case where I, I think each of those reviews was sort of written and edited over the course of a week. And the the thing that Ryan would do is he would sort of dig into the the exact wording you were using and sort of interrogate your writing in a sense that was actually really good for me as a critic, yeah. Because words, you know, words do have meaning, and you you know when you're when you're thinking about the wording uh, wording on that level and meanings, uh, you you tend to you tend to get a little more accurate about what you're trying to express uh, about a game, and so yes. those are the, probably the the reviews I've been happiest with. But it's 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 telling to me that th- those took place in an environment that was almost entirely divorced uh, from the commercial incentives. Uh, of of most games writing i i will say like of late being able to review games at like rock paper shotgun uh and doing early access reviews over there has been uh quite a bit more satisfying because it is a place that is more interested in letting you sort of speak from a personal standpoint uh to take a perspective on something than necessarily trying to hand out a number and hit all the check boxes. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I think, um, in, in terms of like what was the most satisfying to me, it was, it was these reviews written in a really intensive editorial environment. Sure. And, uh, with, with a lot of time. All right. So next email comes from Josh. Hey, at a weekend. I agree there's definitely a long way to go in the representation of mental illness in video games, but in Outlast, I was struck by how sympathetic the quote-unquote monsters were. It seemed very clear to me that the patients were the victims rather than the villains, and it reminded me of the real atrocities committed in places like Pennhurst Asylum, Trenton State Hospital, and Willowbrook State School. Now, I'm not saying that Outlast is an in-depth look at historical mistreatment of the mentally ill, or that it tries to be, but, but should it be? There are great games that attempt to take on complicated issues, like... PTSD and Spec Ops The Line, but I don't think Call of Duty could pull off the same thing. I think there's room for games and other media that are caricatures of reality rather than replications and representations of events, images that for some people might disturb or hit too close to home. Do you think there are better ways to go about drawing that line, or do you disagree entirely? I think, um, well, on, on sort of a base level, I think creators are free to do absolutely anything 
that they want to do. They're just certainly not uh, immune to criticism of those things. Uh, no matter, you know, if you make something that says something terrible about people, whether you meant it to or not, I think it's fair for people to be upset with you. Uh, and with that said, I also think there's a way of being thoughtful. Um, you can make something that's completely goofy and a caricature of reality, but that, you know, goes about those things thoughtfully or, or you know, takes care not to be uh, horrible and insulting. And I guess a good example of something like this is um, D4, Dark Dreams Don't Die, which is the goofiest, just most caricature-laden, bizarre game that is that is in many ways sort of a detective game, but it's also a weird quick time event game. There's a woman who's really a cat. There's this Boston detective. There's all this goofy, goofy shit going on in that game, but I couldn't think of anything that was like insulting or mean or, you know, it's it's going after things that certainly could have been making fun of people with mental illness. I suppose you could say like, especially the cat lady, but it completely is just in terms of tone avoids that. So I think, you know, I think developers are completely free to make, you know, whatever, just, for me personally, I think it's like, just be thoughtful. Just just try not to completely trample on, you know, on someone. Just don't punch down, you know, sort of the that kind of advice is what I would give. There's also a tendency to try and have your cake and eat it too with, with subjects oh, like this. Like, I think sure. Outlast, Outlast does the same sort of thing that, um, Outlast, I feel, did the same sort of thing that Metal Gear Solid 4 did. You remember the, mm-hmm. the what is it, the Beauty and the Beast Squad yes. or whatever it is? Oh, the, uh, the bosses. The yeah. robo-hotties. Yep. Um, that you that they would they would come and they would try to kill you and they were these 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 big boss battles uh they're, re- they're really just pains in the ass to do these <laughs> to do these boss battles uh, but sure. then you'd finally kill them you'd finally like break them out of their suits and like kill the kill these women and then a dude would immediately get on the radio and tell you all about the horrible traumatic like messed up life yep. that caused the sexy lady to be in the robot suit trying to kill you and wasn't it kind of a tragedy that you know you had to kill her and it was like yeah okay like interesting but but you but first you did that you shaded in that character after they'd already been established as a monster uh but but then also at the same time you still were kind of selling this like titillating fantasy right of like the the chick in the cat suit inside the robo armor who you have to kill (laughs) um so it was like, yeah, they, they weren't just they, they weren't just these disposable bosses, but at the same time, they totally were yeah. until they were disposed of. And then the game was like, by the way, they were people. <laughs> and that and, and little did we know, this is how I guess how forward thinking Kojima is. Little, little little did we know that within a few years that would become like the motif of like serious, thoughtful, uh, like triple A games. You know, like Good so Lord, you have yes. Far Cry Three uh, being like. Oh man, you totally, you totally white saviored all those helpless islanders, you monster. Yep. Stuff, stuff like that. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I do think, like you know, Far Cry Three sort of tries to wink and nod at the stereotypes that it is still fulfilling. It is still like it is still creating this like uh, noble. It is still operating this noble savage and and white savior motif. It's just occasionally like putting its hands up and and saying like. By the way, have you noticed we're we're using this motif? That's pretty messed up, huh? Makes you think. It's such a like freshman in college. We're postmodern now. Like the, the just the moment of like, look at how postmodern we are in our awareness of what we're doing. Haha. Like it it was like cute the first seventeen times potentially, but it's not anymore. And it really is like every 
God, we could go on about the division doing this. We could go on about every Far Cry game doing that. You know, it's just very like, okay. I mean, (laughs) I I do think the weird thing is I, I feel that way about games like Far Cry. I felt that way about games like Outlast. I didn't feel that way so much about Spec Ops The Line. Um, and, and Spec Ops The Line, I feel, should maybe have, have grossed me out a little more. But I think I think the way Spec Ops works is it's a game... It's a game about other games that have covered warfare in the post-9-11 era. Yeah. Uh, it, it, games that have cut, that try to cover, um, America's wars in the Middle East. And Spec Ops is sort of this meta commentary on them rather than the actual subject. And I think that's right. maybe an important distinction is that when Spec Ops is doing that and it is sort of showing how, uh, like Arab wives are sort of treated as these like dehumanized props un- until eventually the game sort of forces you to confront uh, the the fact that you've massacred uh, you know a ton of people, which is a scene I'm not entirely sure works, but sure. but at least when it's doing that, it never for a moment is saying this is this is a comment on like war- the war in the Middle East. It's always in this context of this is this is how we this this is how we play in this in this setting right this is how game this is how we have chosen to take this complicated and horrible reality and sort of transmogrify it for entertainment purposes and 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 so i think for for some weird reason that ends up working for me in uh in in spec ops um now it's it's take on ptsd i'm 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 not as i I think take on ptsd is very hollywood yeah, uh, but yeah. but still, I think it's an. I, I think there, it's using PTSD as as actually kind of a way to express uh, deeper misgivings about um, like American militarism and sure. the entertainment uh, culture around it. Sure, that makes sense. I, I have not played that game. I've I've read large chunks of of thoughtful, interesting material about it, but I've actually not played it, and I. Uh, yeah, I'm, I think I should. Uh. I, I think you should. It's you know, I no. think its greatest sin is it's not a very good cover shooter. Sure, but okay. yeah, <laughs> it's one of those things that um, you know, to an extent, I I always sort of judge a game by by how much of it sort of sticks with me after the fact. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I can basically recall, I can like, I can basically <laughs> run a movie of that game in my head from like the opening through to the final credits, like from having played the game once, like there's just a lot of like yeah. indelible stuff in that game that, um, I think is, is, is worth, uh, worth experiencing. So if you ever, if you ever want to go and, and, and do a replay of it, uh, I can go do a replay and, uh, play alongside you and we can get, uh, <laughs> Brendan Keogh on the show or something. Oh my God, and, we should. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> Brendan Keogh wrote a book about this, uh, about this game. In case you're wondering yeah i i actually that's a great idea we should schedule that after the podcast <laughs> all right awesome our next uh letter comes from alex Connolly. my low-hanging fruit question uh comes after your discussion on post-apocalyptica it led me to thinking on one of my favorite science fiction series patrick tilly's amtrak wars i'm waiting for that franchise to get some sort of cross-media treatment everything about it screams video game Tri-factional asymmetry, interesting hooks for systems, captivating world. 
As a gritty strategy of running high-tech wagon train uh, sorties or as an interesting action game or RPG, I want to shake a studio or publisher exec and point exasperatedly at the source material. My question is simply, what property in your eyes makes sense to convert into another media format? Telltale game on the Cuban Missile Crisis? Stars Made Dread miniseries? Maybe even something as bizarre as a board game based on StarCraft? Keep it idle, Alex Connolly. Oh my. Uh, um, there's a lot of things that, that would make sense as sort of a transmedia property. Although I, I admit so to having So let's talk about some, Lost Girl. <laughs> no. Yeah, I, um, I was about to say something about Lost Girl. Yeah, but I, I, I have a lot of, um, you know, I have a lot of feelings about sort of tr- transmedia as it, as it is. You know, I, it's somebody who in grad school studied all the whole Henry Jenkins, uh, you know, philosophy mm-hmm. of transmedia and, and seeing like, Oh, this, this could have enormous potential for, you know, for really telling stories that, that make sense across media and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, sort of the, the textbook case being the Matrix series, which starts out in a promising fashion, you might say, and then just really just peters out into being a, a sad, you know, piece of marketing, basically. Um, but yes, I would totally, totally, totally play a Lost Girl uh, dating sim. That is a game I would play the shit out of and I would have a lot of fun with. And, you know, Date Nido, if you're listening, uh, you should make a Lost Girl dating sim. <laughs> I, I think for me, I, I will always return to um, the magnitude of the missed opportunity around the new Battlestar Galactica will never <laughs> fail to baffle me. Like I, I, to this day, I don't understand how that much money was left on the table around yeah. that, uh, around that series and that setting, because like yeah. it could easily have been, uh, a, a pretty good, like tactical shooter. Cause of all the, like the, the boarding actions with Marines sure. and Cylons, of course it could have been an amazing, like free space style, like Viper simulator. Um, it could have been and its most successful translation was uh, to to the board game setting where it was a it was a trader game uh, sort of hinging on that same element of like uh, fraying relationships and paranoia that, that ran through the series. And I feel like you probably could have done something like that, that uh, on, on maybe an adventure game level. But instead, none of that ever happened. And to this day, I'm, 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 I'm kind of stunned that that entire moment that like came and went over the course of four years and nobody did anything meaningful with it outside of fantasy flight games. Um, and I don't know, maybe it was just bad timing. Maybe that was in an era where nobody wanted to make space games. It was before, uh, Star Citizen illustrated that there were a lot of people oh, yeah. out there who, uh, <laughs> were, would donate a kidney. Uh, or its equivalent value <laughs> for, yes. for 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 oh a space goodness. game, but uh, so that that I think is my uh, that that is that's the one that got away for me. I would still I would still love to see um, Star Trek also successfully done in uh, different formats, although like really completely different formats. Like I would love to see. Star Trek, uh, like procedurally generated, you know, planet uh, exploration game or something like that with the sort of Star Trek ideals of, you know, the prime directive and having this really wonderful morality and having all these senses like the it's funny to me, but my my favorite Star Trek game ever is not an official Star Trek game. It was Red Shirt uh, by uh, um, the tiniest shark. Uh, You know, it was like a little Facebook sim kind of game where you were playing a, uh, you know, a low level ensign or something in a. Star Trek kind of universe, but I've always wanted to, 
I don't know that I, I've always wanted sort of that indie sensibility applied to the the beautiful world of Star Trek. This beautiful moralistic world where exploration and being good to each other is the the highest uh, form of <laughs> the highest form of being, basically. <laughs> but failing awesome. that, the yeah. uh, the Voyager shooter wasn't a bad game necessarily. Apparently not. It was I've all heard, right. I've heard it was pretty good. I I wasn't. Um, I didn't have a PC at the time, yeah. actually, uh, or a PC that could play games anyway at the time. Even though Voyager was like my favorite thing when I was a teenager, like maybe even liked it at the time more than Next Generation or DS9. So, you know, I say this, and I'm telling you, Rob, nobody can actually see this because there's no camera here. But I am literally drinking coffee out of a Captain Picard cup, and I'm drinking water out of a Captain Cisco cup. So, is it like so their heads? Is it like your? Is it like is the mug their head or? Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's like a glass with their with their beautiful etched faces uh, etched onto the glass. It's it's really quite special. My uh, my, my, my college fraternity uh, in in our in our main room had a total like beefcake photo of. Um, Patrick Stewart. Excellent. Uh, it was a. It had to have been a promo shot for um, uh, for First Contact because it's him yeah. sort of like rappelling down or something in like a tight T-shirt and he's carrying the big like phaser rifle and oh like yeah that was that was sort of the centerpiece that really made really held the room together. It uh, really, you know, I wish I had this. I'm not gonna lie, I would put that up in my room as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, amazing. Um, with that, on that beautiful note, uh, let's talk about our weekend projects. Rob, have you been watching or reading or playing anything that's, that is just burning a hole in your life and you need to tell me about it? I wouldn't say burning a hole in my life, but, <laughs> you know, it's just cause it's, it's just cause it's apropos. Yeah. Uh, I just finished reading Red Shirts by John Scalzi. Oh my god. Have you read that? I have not, but I, you know, I've always, I've always wanted to. <laughs> yeah. So if you're not familiar with the conceit, uh, Red Shirts is basically a a a book from the perspective of uh, the the red shirt disposable characters that inhabit a Star Trek like universe, and there's it like the first the the first part of the book is it slowly dawns on them that they keep dying. In these really improbable and nonsensical ways, the the rules of the universe keep breaking down around them, just so <laughs> that a red shirt can get killed. And then, uh, meanwhile, the like senior officers are always spared any real serious repercussions. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. you know, it's it's this sort of uh, it's it's sort of a a, a humor book uh, about sort of self aware red shirts uh, and the conventions of the sci fi genre. At least that's how it starts. Then it becomes a book about sort of fictional characters intruding on their creators' lives to try to argue their case about why they deserve better treatment from the author. And then it ends, and this is where I think the book starts to weaken a little bit. Uh, then it ends with, um, a, a series of, of, of three codas basically of, uh, the, the people in, inhabiting the creative world that created the fiction, um, <laughs> sort of reacting to what they've learned over the course of the story. And, uh, I think it's at its weakest when there's a very sort of thinly disguised, like, uh, like it's a Scalzi, uh, 
blog post basically is, sure. is the first sure. epilogue uh which can be a little grating because it's so in the voice of the author yeah. um that yeah. you know and it's familiar if you're if you've been on the internet you've you've come across a, a scalzy uh link at some point yeah. but <laughs> it, yeah so it's it's a weird book it's it's a lot of fun I, I i had a lot of fun with it then it shifted gears and i was a little thrown by it uh but it's you know it it, it could have been i think just a really sort of a, a, a thin joke Mm-hmm. That that couldn't sort of be stretched out to novel length, but I do think with its sort of like meta commentary on storytelling and the conventions of sci-fi, that it does become a little more interesting. And uh, it was it was a, it was a fun way to pass an afternoon. Well, that sounds that sounds like a fun thing to do. I would probably enjoy it quite a bit as a you know giant nerd and Star Trek fan. I have been reading a book that, you know, I don't want to give this my full uh, hearty recommendation because I think it is a little rough around the edges, but I, I have been enjoying it uh, sort of in the evening before bed. I've been reading Codex, which I think is the first uh, novel by Lev Grossman who went on to write the Magician's novels, yeah. you know, The Magician's, The Magician King, some other magician. I, I read The Magician's when it first, first came out uh, a few years ago, and I really adored it, and I have not watched the TV series um, and I remember I got this book. I bought this book. Actually, I have a like signed autograph copy from the author from um, Powell's Books in Portland, where I was like six years ago or something. And it's this, you know, kind of fun. It's almost like a laid back thriller, which sounds a little weird. It's a thriller that sort of um, it's not terribly long. And it's a thriller that kind of goes at a more of a gentle pace than most thrillers, but not in a bad way. It's like a pleasant thriller. It's about this, you know, sort of asshole banker guy who gets involved with this sort of disaffected graduate student, and they go looking for a medieval text that sort of uh, proves something. You know, the the stakes are never really uh, sky high in this book, but that's kind of okay. It's like this really fun little unfolding mystery. You know, I'm, I'm certainly whipping through the pages. Now, I am... It does feel a little bit like a first novel in the way that, you know, the prose is maybe a little too flowery at times. Uh, there's there's a little bit of that to it, but it's not it's not enough to really distract me from enjoying the story and enjoying sort of the pacing of this story. Uh, so, yeah, the name of the book is Codex from Lev Grossman. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm enjoying it. A pleasant thriller, I suppose. Uh, the first pleasant thriller of this nature that I've ever read, actually. Every other thriller I've read has been, you know... Edge of your seat, pooping your pants, and right. the, you know, kind of thing. So, <laughs> yeah, quite enjoying that. Awesome. So I think at this point, it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. If you folks are enjoying the show, uh, please, please do rate us on iTunes and tell your friends about it. We really, really appreciate it. It helps so much. And I just want to give a little shout out. Uh, to folks who came up to me at JDC and said they were enjoying the show and that they liked it. That means the absolute world to me, and, I, and I'm sure it means a lot to you as well, Rob, because it's, it's, it's nice to know that people appreciate your work, certainly. It so, absolutely helps. So thank you folks so much for that, and please tell your friends, tell your parents, tell, tell whoever you think might enjoy the show. Uh, you can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net. Send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. And to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Great. Bye.
Ai, <risos> 